Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions. We are the creators of the Ultimate Patient Experience Blueprint. So if you own, run, manage, or otherwise administrate a healthcare practice or facility and you want to attract, acquire, engage, and retain more clients and patients into your facility, then head on over to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com and and see how we can help you. Well, this week on the docket, we are swinging back into the world of business, the business side of healthcare and managing a practice and specifically what happens after we've started a practice and maybe it's time to retire, maybe it's time to leave, maybe it's time to just move on. What do we need to think about in terms of exit planning and more specifically kind of the broader topic of exit strategy? I know one time in the consulting world where I I spent a lot of my professional career uh, as a healthcare consultant, in the knowledge worker field, you know, it's not like we're roofing houses or twisting wrenches or swinging hammers or anything like that. There is really nothing keeping us from doing this type of work, knowledge work, into perpetuity until our cognitive faculties fail us, right? <laughs> so I remember listening to a podcast a couple years ago, and it was uh, the Two Bobs podcast. Give them a shout out. Uh, Blair Ends from Win Without Pitching. And he said something that was very profound to me at the time, which was, if you work in the knowledge field, you should consider that there is no exit plan for you. Your, your job, your firm, because he's talking primarily to, to marketing and consulting firms, is not something that you have to put away because your body breaks down. You can keep on thinking. As long as you can think and articulate, you can keep working. And that had me thinking originally about this whole idea of, well, what is, what is the idea of an exit plan anyways, if it's going to be something like a small consultancy, you know, Rehab You Practice Solutions is really me and an assistant. We've got some contractors that we use, but for the most part, it's me, myself, and my brain that's driving a lot of the content, that's driving a lot of the work. The actual consulting hands-on work with clients is more in between my ears than it is a product that we're selling or um, even a, a system that we're using employees to deliver. So in that sense, yeah, it makes total sense. Like when I get ready to pull the plug or retire or, you know, when I leave this earth, <laughs> rehab you just kind of folds up and goes away. Sure, there's intellectual property and assets that are going to be owned by the by the entity and my heirs will take that and all. But from a from a standpoint of is there much value in that business to sell to anybody? Not really because it's me. The, the business is me. And I don't really think I want to change that because it's provided me the career and the lifestyle that I want, being able to work with interesting, cool people um, and not having to put a whole lot of pressure into 
building the underlying value. If you would, a single or an independent consultancy like Rehab You Practice Solutions is more of a cash flow play than it is an equity play. But when we get to the point of starting up a healthcare practice where we have employees and a large base of patients and we're, we are purchasing equipment and investing in infrastructure and really building equity value into the business itself, that needs to be part of our plan. And I've read somewhere that for most small business owners, the majority of their wealth is tied into their business. It's equity that they hold in their business. So from that standpoint, it totally makes sense that what we want to do as clinic owners, as practice administrators, all that kind of stuff is we want to we want to build the value of the business. But why do we want to build the value of the business? What's the point? There's no point in building the value of a business unless the ultimate end goal is an exit of some kind. And by exit, we mean selling it, whether it be to another employee or uh, maybe some kind of partner arrangement or some Practices that I've worked with in the past have had some sort of succession planning that involved pulling up senior leadership into partners, and then those partners end up acquiring equity in the business. And over time, the the founders and the owners kind of phase out, and this new crop of uh, partners and owners steps into the plate, right? So it could be something like that, or it could be selling your the business that you've got to either a strategic uh, investor, some maybe it's a, a healthcare system that's looking to acquire independent practices in their area, or maybe even something like a, a private equity firm or something like that. But all of that, that whole topic of who's going to buy the business and what does it look like and what should we think about can be very convoluted because, again, I've said this multiple times, but the people that get into healthcare primarily get into healthcare from this deep sense of a desire to serve and to help and to heal. It's more of a vocation or a calling than it is an enterprise or a business, right? So many of us don't even put in the thought about exit planning because it hasn't, we don't think in the in the business terms, right? <laughs> this, is, this is our practice. This is how we serve people. This is how we make a difference in the world. This is how we leave the world a better place because of us being here. And we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the business administrative side, the hiring, the HR, and then ultimately selling the practice. What is, the, what is my practice worth? How is it valued? What is a, a potential buyer going to look for or consider something valuable that's going to raise the selling price versus something that they see as a risk that's going to decrease the selling price? So... If you're like me and you haven't been involved in a, a whole lot of mergers and acquisitions, I mean, I've acquired a business, I've acquired a clinic maybe 18 months ago, um, and that was a learning curve for me. But prior to that, I had no idea about the value of a business and how you come up with the multiples and all of that kind of stuff that can be r really over your head if you're a clinician that's really, you're a very good uh, specialist, even a clinical specialist, but you haven't spent a whole lot of time on the business side of things. So to help kind of iron some of that out, provide some of the details for us, we're bringing back uh, Mike Pekatowski. He's from uh, Physical Therapy Brokers, and he's going to talk a little bit about his firm and kind of the services that he provides through that. But our main conversation is all about the idea of exit strategy and exit planning. So you should start your business or start your practice with the end, maybe not the end goal in mind to sell it, but at least the plan and the understanding of 
what it's going to take to exit the business in the event of maybe a lifestyle circumstance or you're just ready to retire. How do you exit the business that you've built? So without further ado, here's Mike Pikatowski talking about exit strategy. Well, hey, Mike, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great, Rafi. How are you? I'm doing all right. So I'm looking forward to talking about uh, preparing an exit strategy, what owners can do to position their practices for sale. But before we do that, just give us a brief rundown who you are, the work you, that you do, your history, all that kind of stuff. I know we've had you on the show before, but there might be some people that uh, haven't heard of you before. Yeah, sure. Um, I am a um, M&A consultant. Um, I help um, practice owners buy or sell practices. Um, I've been doing this for the last eight years. Um, I've been on kind of both sides of the fence where I'm helping um, practice owners sell their practices to larger companies for the last couple of years. And prior to that, I worked for some of the big consolidators out there as a uh, vice president of mergers and acquisitions uh, nationally for, for about six years. So, um, you know, that uh, I've got a kind of got around both sides of the fence there, uh, experience on both sides of the fence there. And, and uh, I'm really enjoying working on the sell side now and, and working with the uh, sellers. And uh, I think I um, am able to offer some, uh, some experience that a lot of folks out there don't have having been on both sides of the fence. So, yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about that, particularly planning an exit strategy. Cause when we first connected about this, I was like, Oh, maybe we could do something about selling your business. And you said, well, maybe we need to back up and kind of take like a 30,000 foot view first. So kind of paint the picture for us. What is like, when we say exit strategy, kind of in your mind, what are you thinking and what all that does that entail? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that um, that I see a lot when I'm working with someone who's getting ready to sell their, their business is I'm consulted um, or they don't start looking for help until they're already, you know, uh, pretty far into a process. And um, at that point, I can still help them, but it really makes a lot more sense. And, and the people who I have worked with over the years that have gotten the most value out of their practices had a very good, well-defined exit strategy. So they've been looking at this kind of starting with the end in mind and um, and working on their exit strategy for many years prior to actually going through the process. Um, and so, you know, an exit strategy in its simplest form is just um, understanding where your business is today and where you want it to be um, when you're ready to, to um, wrap it up. And there's a lot of details that have to happen between today and, and that time. Um, a lot of positioning, maybe, maybe some different things you need to work on it within the practice to optimize it. Um, maybe, um, you know, some, some strategies that you want to develop before you're ready to practice, to, to sell your practice. So really at the end of the day, that's, it's in its simplest form. It's just having a plan and, uh, working through, through that plan, um, over, over the final years. I, I apologize. My dog's oh, yeah. getting excited. You're good. You're good. Um, so Obviously, the part of this is timeline and all of that, but you know, many folks kind of just get into business. They might start a practice because they want to treat it on their own terms. At what point in time 
should they be thinking, I'm going to sell this thing? Like, should this be like day one, we're building this thing to sell it? Or, you know, like, is it better to pick a date in the future? Like in 2027, I'm going to sell and kind of reverse engineer from there. Or can you build it kind of like open-ended almost? Like we're just going to put these systems in place and then whenever you're ready to sell, boom, you can because all the things are working right. Right. So um, it it always helps. The longer timeline you have, the better off you're going to be. Obviously, it just gives you more time to plan. So I have worked with people who have just recently opened their business and they know at some point down the road that they'll probably sell it. And, you know, those folks... Are, are, in my opinion, you know, uh, doing all their legwork early. They're understanding the, the uh, you know, how valuations work. They're understanding, um, you know, what's going to make their business more, um, more uh, appetizing, so to speak, for, for a potential buyer. They're learning about the different buyers and who they might want to sell with. Um, you know, um, it's, it's a, it, there, there's many, many steps to it. Um, and if you don't, um, put some time into it and you just kind of go through the process of, of selling your practice when you're about ready to retire or, or have, you know, have a need to, to exit the business, that's quite honestly the worst position to be in when you go to sell your, sell your business. So, um, you know, I, I've worked on, with folks uh, on both ends of the spectrum. Um, and it's de- there's definitely those folks that have started the process. I always say about three to five years prior to exit, you should be going through this process at a minimum. Yeah. Um, okay. And then, so when we say this process, what are we talking? Are we talking like, um, like operational efficiency, like getting some metrics down, like kind of big picture here? Yeah, so the, the way a, a good exit planning strategy works is you start with a valuation. You understand where your business is today, how much it's worth um, you know, on the market today. And you also do a practice assessment. You, do, you look at things like compliance. You look at things like the key performance indicators and understand if there are any areas that really need to be cleaned up before you could even get in front of a buyer. Um, and... You, you look at all those things and lay out a plan. Some, you know, for instance, the the um, the gentleman that I worked with uh, just the last couple of weeks, who's relatively, he's only a year or two into his business. Um, you know, his his uh, strategy was revolving around growth and how fast does he have to grow in order to exit and the timeline that he is interested in exiting in. So you're able to put to, together some some numbers and, and some projections of what that looks like so that you can set uh, strategic goals and identify the initiatives behind that that are going to help you achieve those goals. Um, so, you know, that's that's a that's a probably, a, you know, a, sam- a sample for someone who's early on in, in the process. And then, you know, if, um, working with several folks right now who are getting ready to go to process and those folks, we've you know, you've, you've identified a couple key performance indicators or, uh, you know, a small compliance issue that really needs to be cleaned up before you're ready to go to market. So it might be best to wait a year, uh, six months or a year, or even two years to, to, before they're ready and, and have everything in place to maximize their, uh, the value of their business when they're ready to exit. Yeah. I'm assuming like a year out, you don't have a whole lot of control about how much 
increase you can add to evaluation, right? That you're, 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 you know, if, if I get uh, another example is somebody that uh, I've re been that recently contacted me is already, you know, contemplating an LOI with somebody at that point. Yeah. You know, um, the, the, the uh, buyers already made some assumptions on the business and you may not have positioned it, you know, in such a way to maximize uh, the value of, of your business. So it's, it's just a, it's, it, you, there's less you can do with practices that are at that stage. Yeah. So then talk a little bit about them valuations, like generally just kind of broad brush stroke. I'm assuming obviously the type of buyer is going to going to change and alter the valuation a little bit, but generally speaking, what, I guess, how are we calculating the value of a practice? And then kind of what are the key factors? Like, okay, if you improve this metric or you improve X, Y, Z, you can increase that valuation over time. Yeah. So as part of the assessment phase, uh, when we go through evaluation, it's important to understand who's going to make a good partner for, for the seller. Um, you know, there's, uh, I just put together a, a list today or, or updated my list and there's 31 buyers out in the market that are active today in, in the PT market that I'm aware of. Um, that's the most that I've ever seen in my career. Um, so, you know, but each buyer has a different way of valuing um, a practice um, and there are benefits and drawbacks with different types of buyers. So it really depends on, you know, where the, the seller, what type of exit they're, they're looking for. Um, so, you know, understanding their goals, if they want to stay on with the business and grow and they just need a bunch of cash and they have a large practice, they may be better suited to look for, some, you know, a, a, an equity buyer, a private equity firm or investor, private investor that's going to help invest cash into the into their business and allow them to grow as a platform. Um, you know, the, the valuations on those tend to be pretty you know, about as aggressive as they're going to get in, in the business. Um, there are other types, you know, strategic buyers are, are the, probably the ones that most people sell their businesses to. That's your, um, you know, the, the large big box companies out there. I won't rattle off any names to, to show any favoritism, yeah. but, but everyone knows who those guys are, right? Um, and so those guys offer very competitive rates. And again, there's a ton of them out there right now fighting for the same, same businesses. So right now, you know, today, the multiples are, are still very strong. Um, and then there's other options for, for certain buyers. You know, if you have a business model that's not traditional, um, if you're an out-of-network business or a cash-based business, you know, it might be difficult to find a strategic buyer um, so you're looking for another out-of-network business or another um, cash-based business that's interested in, in growing and through acquisition and, and or partnering. Um, and then finally, you know, there's always the uh, uh, another popular option with a lot of folks is selling the practice to, you know, already an employee or a family member over time. And, and so each one of those is priced differently. And, and you know, so we can provide you when you when you do an assessment of the range of okay yeah. if you went this you know with this type of buyer versus this type of buyer what does that look like and you know if you have 
um, you know, if, if, if you're a sophisticated seller and you have a very uh, uh, defined goal of what you need to exit a, a dollar amount or, you know, a specific uh, goals that you want to hit, it starts to, you know, really cl clearly define what those options are, which the best or the clear clearest path is. Um, <clears throat> so I'll go back to the the gentleman that I just worked with uh, over the last couple of weeks is very early on a year or two into his practice. Um, you know, his, his goal was to exit in, in five years. And he wanted to do that by having, you know, X number of clinics and, and that kind of thing. But really at the end of the day, he either had to, ha to have more clinics than that or, or generate a lot more, more profit per clinic in order to hit his financial goal. And so it was, it was helpful for him to see, oh, okay, well, so I either need to be more aggressive with my growth plan, or I need to find a way to be more efficient or a little bit of both in order to hit that, that marker. So that really started to lay out, lay out the foundation of what he needed to do to hit that, that, you know, that, that goal. And, and uh, that's, that's the, the beauty of an exit plan. It, it really starts to define what those goals are for you, allows you to understand them and clearly set, uh, you know, probably smaller individual goals that you'll need to hit in order to achieve your overall goal. Yeah. Okay. Well then let's talk a little bit about the actual, you, you said multiples and valuation and all that. For those that just might not have any clue or maybe they've heard it and they don't really know what it is. When we say we're evaluating something based off a multiple, kind of define that for us. What is a multiple? How do you get to one? All of that kind of stuff. Yeah, so um, the most standard way in the uh, physical therapy world to value a practice would be to come to an adjusted EBITDA number. Now that's something, you know, an advisor or possibly some accountants can help you with. Um, you know, I, I always always uh, try and throw a little bit of caution out. You know, accountants are, will get you to an EBITDA number, but they may not know some of the addbacks that typical buyers would, would provide you in a PT world. So they'll miss some things just because they're not familiar with the industry. Um, so you really need to work with someone that understands the, the business very, very well. Um, and you get to that adjusted EBITDA, and then that is the kind of the your scorecard. From there, you apply a multiple to um, that number, and a multiple is exactly what it says. We multiply that adjusted EBITDA by a number. Um, you know, I've, the, the ranges of multiples um, in today's day and age can you know range from a, a two and a half or three on the low end for a very small practice. And, uh, you know, I've seen them in the 10 range, nine and a half and 10 for larger practices. And so, um, you know, it, 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 it's a big swing on those numbers yeah. and, and understanding where your practice would fall, uh, not only in the, on the adjusted EBITDA, but what a realistic multiple is for you at your current level. And then what it would look like if you were to grow or, or do different things within the business that allows you, that's the, the crux of creating a, at least a financial exit goal uh, and strategy. Yeah. So you're basically saying, you know, net profit at the end of the day or whatever it is. And then we'll, we'll kind of take a multiple of that. Are there like financial metrics or benchmarks outside of that? Like, is it 
um, like let's say you have a, a really big practice, which might have a, a really high EBITDA, but it's a tiny margin just because of scale and you're operating inefficiently versus like a small practice that might have a, like numbers wise a smaller EBITDA, but it's a much higher margin because they're running a much more efficient practice. Does that play into that at all? Oh yeah, scale uh, scale. the practice is, is one of the largest influencers of multiples. The larger the practice is, um, the, the better the multiple. Um, and, and the smaller the practice is, is the, you know, typically the smaller the multiple. Um, it all comes down to risk. You know, as a buyer, you're, you're, you're hedging against risk. So if yeah. you have a large practice that doesn't have a good margin, your, your percentage of your margin, your EBITDA margin is low, that's a risk. There's something to it. So that's going to take a little bit off. You're still going to get a better multiple than a very small practice, but you're also, your profitability is going to be low and, and there's going to be some, you're, you're going to take some money off the table if you're not able to improve those margins before you go to market. Yeah. Okay. And, um, so I would assume, again, types of buyers might look at that a little differently, right? Like a, um, a PE firm might look at a smaller margin, be like, eh, we don't necessarily care about that. We kind of want the, the larger return versus a big strategic buyer. They might just be looking at like a, a geographical play, right? And they're like, oh, we'll take a lower margin, but it gets us into this new market or something, right? Uh, somewhat, yeah. Again, there's, there's risk. And, you know, the, the private equity guys, just remember, those guys are bankers. Yeah. You know? um, so. <laughs> They see risk too. The you know kind of think of your insurance agent and, and those guys. Um, they're they're just when they see risk that that is going to make them a little bit less aggressive with with their multiples. Um, yes, uh, pro short term profitability isn't as important um, to a to a private equity firm that's going to be you know in it for you know five years and and looking to grow and scale the business aggressively in those five years. Um, but they have to get there and they have to have, have trust that the leadership team that they're, they're buying is going to be able to deliver that, that, um, the margin that they need. Yeah. Okay. And then I, I'm assuming too, like part of this is we've kind of talked about the financial numbers. Like, do you have a number that you want to exit at and all that, but there's also like exit plan. What happens to the owners after a purchase, right? And there are different ways that that 100%. can shake out, right? There's, yeah. you could be an employee of the company or you can kind of ride off into the sunset. Talk a little bit about that and how that might influence either the decision to pick a, like a strategic buyer versus a, a private equity firm or something like that. Yeah, so most most buyers are, are hoping or wanting the seller to stay on for a period of time. Yeah. And the main driver behind that is physical therapy, is and always will be a relationship business. Uh -huh. um, and so, you know, uh, these larger buyers or even PE firms could put up physical therapy locations anywhere they want very quickly. They have tons of cash to do that stuff. But what, if they don't have the relationships, those those buildings are gonna be empty. And, and that's what a strategic or, or a private equity firm or whomever is buying when they buy a practice, they're buying the relationships that most often the sellers have created over the years with the, with the referral sources, with the community, with previous patients, that's the value in a practice. So in most cases, a private equity firm um, in almost all cases is, is buying that leadership team to continue to, to build that business. So you got to 
be invested and want to stay on for years and years and years. Um, for a, a strategic, you're gonna you you need to give them time to to uh, leverage those relationships and 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 potentially train or transfer those relationships uh, to other staff members over time. And so I always say a minimum of two years before you're ready to retire or or move on. Um, you should be thinking about exiting with that amount of, of gas left in the tank for you personally. Um, you that in in all cases they'll offer you a a uh, a nice you know position with the company. Um, so you'll be making uh, a regular salary um, in addition to collecting whatever um, cash or 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 uh, deal that you've struck in in the background. So um, and yes, you'll be working. Um, but oftentimes they're able to take a lot of the back office headache and, and burden of the day to day away from you as a business owner, because that'll all be done in the background and you can focus on growing your business and treat or treating patients or whatever it is that that, uh, you know, uh, gets you out of the out of bed in the morning and keeps you keeps you hungry. Yeah. Now, part of this, too, I know we, we mentioned this last time we talked on the show, but this idea of you're going to stay on for a little bit. And sometimes that involves like an earnout, right? Is that almost like a blanket as a way of these, you know, again, they're mitigating risk. They're trying to keep the leadership team in place. Like, is that almost at this point, like a universal thing? If you're selling a, a health practice or PT practice, it's going to involve some kind of earnout because they're trying to keep those relationships around for a certain amount of time, right? So earnouts are popular. Um, there are other ways of, of doing that. Um, you know, there might be some kind of um, retained equity um, after after close as well that can keep, you know, keep skin in the game, so to speak, um, after the close. Um, but at the end of the day, earnout is, is a way to mitigate risk. Um, and the, the earnouts are are, you know, typically a, an agreed upon portion of the purchase price that would be paid out you know, over a, a defined period of time after close. And there is usually some kind of financial marker or some kind of operational marker tied to it. And if, as long as you're able to hit those markers, you get, sometimes you get, a, a, you know, just 100% or sometimes you can even get more than 100% if you blow it out of the water. Um, so it's a way to kind of share that risk. If you um, are unable to hit those markers, then you may not get, you know, the full earnout. you may not get any of the earnout if it really goes bad. Um, so, but again, think of it as a buyer, their, 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 their goal is to mitigate risk. And so if there's any risk factors in there, they may talk to you about earnouts um, it, it, as part of the deal structure. Um, you know, larger practices, they're probably gonna more, more or less talk to you about some kind of retained equity. Um, and so that's a that's a different way to keep skin in the game after close and, and a way to participate in growth of the company after you sell. And so there's there's a lot of benefits and drawbacks to each each path, but you're probably going to see one or or both of those, unless it's a smaller practices may have fewer um, you know fewer risks involved like that. Uh, they're just they're, you're not putting out large sums of money, so. You know, you might be able to avoid some of that with a with a very small transaction, but by and large, most most folks when they go to sell, or, you know, you're probably going to see something along those lines. 
Yeah. Okay. And like retained earnings, like have those been worked in deals? I'm assuming like where some of the sale price even gets rolled in, like almost like a second bite of the apple type deal, or is that correct? Okay. It's, yeah. So so a lot of folks will call it the second bite of the apple. Um, so you know, uh, retained equities essentially you can you you roll over a portion of the purchase price. You know, usually defined as a, a percentage, uh-huh. whatever that works out to be. You know, for for uh, for example sake, let's say you roll over a hundred thousand dollars of your purchase price into uh, retained equity. Um, now, again, that could be held at the local level, could be held at the parent level of the corporation. There's a lot of different ways of, of structuring that, but at the end of the day, you own a piece of the business after close. If the business does really well um, after, you know, a- a- and uh, there's some kind of transaction at the at the parent level. Typically, this is usually what triggers it. There are other triggers as well, but typically it has to be a, 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 a transaction at the parent level. You'll get paid whatever the value of that equity is at that at that time. Um, there have been a lot of uh, sellers over the years who've made you know significant sums of money um, on the retained equity. Um, you know, just because they held it for four or five years or, or longer. And, and then when they're ready to to uh, cash out or, or there was a transaction that occurred, um, they were able to, um, you know, see significant appreciation on, on that investment. Yeah. Okay, cool deal. Um, I guess moving on from there, like besides an, an earn out and, or a, a retained equity, however that plays out, like, what are some other major things that a seller might want to be aware of going into? Um, hopefully they're not looking at an LOI before they call you or something like that, but some things they need to have in mind as they prepare their business for close, obviously like, am I going to re- stay here for a year, two years, three years, four years, et cetera, after the sale. But then what else, what else are we looking at here? So again, knowing kind of having a good idea what the practice is worth before you go into the process is very helpful because you can be surprised good or bad, surprised on, on what the value <laughs> is, um, and, and understanding what deal terms make the most sense for you going in. Um, um, so, you know, think about it this way. It's a, it's a little bit of give and take. If you're um, looking to retire immediately, that's risk. So they're either going to take a little off the table from a multiple standpoint, the, you know, maybe a... Um, the the um, uh, hold back and 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 um, you know they they may try and uh, increase the amount of of cash that's deferred and protected um, yeah. one way or the other. Um, so, but knowing what you need from an exit plan allows you to go into that process understanding the risk and reward, and so. You know, if you've talked with an advisor and and truly understand your options and truly have kind of worked through those and thought about those a little bit before you got in the process, you're going to have a good idea what makes sense as a good deal for you. And you're you know, it it will be kind of I don't want to say obvious, but it'll be, yes, this feels right. And and that is um, that level of satisfaction is is. Um, you know, I only see that really with the folks that really, really thought through and understand 
the 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 process and have done a nice job preparing for it. Those folks kind of knew what they needed, kind of knew the risks and rewards going in, and kind of knew where the give and take was uh, through the negotiations. And and so they're not surprised, and and they end up with a deal that makes sense for them, and they feel comfortable with afterwards. Yeah. Um, what about, so let's say somebody is like nearing the tail end, they're ready, maybe they're ready to retire, maybe they're, they're just ready to exit, right? Um, they do evaluation like, man, this is not where I need to be or where I want to be. And they're faced with the option. The options are either we're going to improve operational efficiency to kind of increase that EBITDA, maybe pull the multiple, you know, that way if the multiple doesn't change, they're getting a little bit more money um, or some other kind of, maybe we need to do some kind of crazy growth or whatever it is. Like what are, it, let's say somebody does have a multiple that they don't like. <laughs> What's right. the biggest, what is, what are the biggest things that they can do to kind of improve that? Whether it be again, like operational efficiency versus financial performance and all that kind of stuff. Well, obviously your, your adjusted EBITDA is going to um, be a, a big part of that. Um, Almost like a key part, right? Like if that, yeah. if that's doing poorly, it's <laughs> not what you can do. Yeah. yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, um, it, there's a, there's a, you know, probably 50 factors uh-huh. that could influence a multiple. Uh, and so it may not just be one thing. It may be a combination of things. And that's why if you understand that going in, you can talk with an advisor and sometimes those are tough conversations. Uh, you know, I, you know, I've, I've had to, to tell people that, that, you know, in the past, their practice is not worth nearly as much as they think it is today, but here's what the here's some options that you can think about that will make it more valuable in the future and you know i'm i'm not going to going to sit there and tell you you need to do x y and z i'm going to lay out the options and then whichever one makes sense to you or whichever ones make sense to you i can help you with we can help we can help you get there um i i think the question that you're asking is not, there's not, there's never going to be one yeah. thing. Um, there's, it's going to be multiple things. Um, and, you know, um, if you have, you know, kind of the worst case scenario, someone needs to retire or exit the business immediately. And they're, it's a small practice and, and there's, and there's just not a lot of EBITDA there. I mean, you're just not going to get a whole lot for it in that scenario. I mean, it's like a fire fire sale at that point. So um, there's just not, there's not much there. Um, You know, if they don't have any leadership or succession planning in place, they don't have good uh, KPIs. um, It's just going to be a challenge to to even sell a practice like that. Yeah. A lot of those folks are, and I'm not a lot of those, but I don't want to put any words in anybody's mouth, but um, like, let's say, that situation happens. I'm sure you've seen a, a number of them. Those those practice owners are they just in a lot of times just folding their business up. They're just closing operations, sell, selling the assets, and calling it a day. Or is there like hope for them to eke out a, a sale? <laughs> there there is hope. Um, it, it really just has to come down to um, having the right buyer who's willing uh-huh. to work with them. Um, so it comes down a little bit to luck. Um, at the end, and, and if you can find the, the buyer that that um, is willing to, you know, pay them a little bit more than just the, you know, buy the buy the equipment kind of deal, yeah. um, then um, you know, then you can you can at least get something out of it. Um, and, and 
but those obviously that that's not the position you want to be in and yeah. that's exactly what an exit planning strategy does is help you avoid that scenario yeah how about folks that are that maybe are looking to sell to somebody who's not one of these strategic uh purchasers you know like you said some folks want to sell to the employees or a family member a lot of this i'm assuming holds true right we're, we're still going to value the business you know more or less not the same way but it, same basic calculation. We're going to get to your EBITDA. We're going to figure out a multiple from there. Like, are there any, I guess, nuances or something like that when you're selling to like employees or something like that versus this, you know, big entity that's going to come in and not gobble you up, but you're going to get worked into their greater scheme of operations as opposed to like Jim has been working here for a few years. He wants to buy it and I'm ready to retire. Right. So yeah, there are there are several nuances that you you really need to consider going that route. First, uh, you're dealing the buyers just don't have deep pockets. Yeah. Um, so they're not going to be, be able to pay an aggressive multiple. Um, so you're you're going to get a hometown discount right there. Um, so, um, but you know, for some people that is an important step, and that's something that they really really want to happen. It makes sense. You know, if they're selling to a family member and they don't need to 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 uh, uh, a larger check when they when they go to exit, great. You know, the, there's no no problem with that 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 scenario. Just expect the numbers to be smaller than if you were to be dealing with um, you know a strategic or a private equity or whomever. Um, so that's that's number one. Number two, the sophistication level drops down quite a bit. So the the um, the ability to close in a timely manner is usually not easy to do. Um, and um, typically the structures on those deals involve uh, small payouts over long periods of time, you know, because they just don't have the cash unless they're going to, uh, you know, mortgage everything in, in their yeah. name and, and um, you know, try and raise, get a massive business loan. You're just not going to be able to provide to, to write a check and, um, um, you know, easily anyway. Yeah. So that's that's the risk reward of it. I mean, there's there's no problem with going that route. And, and you and I've done several uh, transactions like that that have been very successful. Um, and both owner owner and seller were, were very happy afterwards. But just, you know, we're just going to be dealing with smaller numbers. And typically it takes a little longer. Yeah. Yeah, because I guess you're right. They don't have millions of dollars to throw around. So it's like, <laughs> right. I can pay you this much now. And how about like exactly. um, like even almost like a managed um, managed service agreement or something like that, where they're stepping kind of more and more into leadership, maybe pulling in some equity every year or something like that. There's like a five-year roadmap, right? For them to- There, there to are structures that, you know, you buy the equity over time. Yes. Yeah. Um, we've, we've uh, you know, I've, I've seen those done before as well. And, and, um, again, it, it really depends. It, it really comes down to what does the seller want and and what are they willing to to work for? And when you weigh all the options, when when the seller has done a good job at weighing all the options and they know the path that they want to go, it becomes a lot more clear on what we need to do to help them get there. And that's that's those types of uh, working with those folks that are prepared like that are just you know it's just it's it's a little bit cleaner and, and it goes uh usually a little bit more well for for the sellers just because they're they're prepared and they they know the risks they know the rewards they know the path that they need to go and 
they know the the benefits and drawbacks of each of the each of the options that they're choosing. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Rohn said uh, destination determines direction, right? <laughs> you need to know where you're going before you can chart the path. So. Exactly. Um, you mentioned this at the beginning, and I kind of want to circle back to it right before we wrap up. The professionals that practice owners are going to use or healthcare practitioners are going to use to sell their practice or their business. Um, what are some of those big things they need to look for? Obviously, you kind of laid it out like they need to understand the industry because there's a lot of nuances in, in healthcare and PT in general. That's like, why are you doing it that way? That's just because the way PT does, does it, right? Um, what are some of those big things they need to look for if they're going to look at acquiring some kind of um, advisor or consultant or someone to help them through the M&A process? And then, like you said, even accountants and, and financial professionals. Yeah, so um, I'll start with the M&A advisor just because I'm biased, I guess. But, um, you, you really need to work with somebody. There, there are, are a ton of professionals out there who can sell businesses or help you sell businesses, uh, business brokers, whatever. Um, but if they've not done transactions in the PT space, um, and I mean multiple, multiple times, they're just not going to know all, all the ins and outs. You're not going to maximize value with, 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 with those folks. Again, there's accountants out there who are very, very well versed in valuing businesses, and and but again, if unless they've done a ton of these in the PT space, it's just going to be tough. Um, so the you know I do always recommend it, uh, an M&A advisor who understands the industry. Um, um, you know there are a few out there, um, um, but there's not as many as you think, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, um, and. Um, the other the other key uh, person that you need to have on your team is a lawyer who under, also understands the PT space. Um, there are lawyers, um, you know, having sat on, you know, over 50 closed transactions right now, um, you know, when we've had lawyers on both sides that really understand the space, the process goes incredibly smooth. Um, you know, we're not haggling over over um, details and and um, it just goes way, way smoother. Um, so, you know, you want to at least on your end, make sure that you have the lawyer who understands the space and can help you maximize and get the best deal structure uh, and legal set up than you as you possibly can um, at close. Um, and again, there's there's a few out there who've done you know dozens or even hundreds of these transactions at this point, and those are the guys that you need to to partner with and retain when you're ready to go through that part of the process. Um, and, and then you know you will at as you go through the process need um, some other team members around around you that will be helpful. Your accountant. Um, will be extremely important through the process. They will understand the process. They may not know the business real well, but they'll understand the process. They'll understand the numbers. They'll be able to help you prepare reports and different things that you need. Um, and typically, whoever manages your revenue cycle um, is going to be an important person to be part of that, that team as well um, so that they can provide reports um, about your insurances and, and uh, agings and and different types of reports that are going to be necessary as you go through the process. Yeah. All right. Cool deal. Um, well, we're getting near the end here. If there are just two points, one or two main points, you would want a listener 
to take away from this episode, what would they be? Start early. <laughs> Absolutely start early. Um, three to five years out minimum before you start to uh, go through an exit plan. Um, and then to surround yourself with the right people. Um, you know, if you're, if you're going to go through this, get somebody that's going to help you go through this process, um, who's, who has a lot of experience with it, that's going to help you both from a legal perspective, from a transaction perspective, accounting perspective. Um, you know, you need people around, good people around you to help you help you get through this process. It's not an easy process. And, um, you know, um, having the right team around you is going to make it as, as easy as it possibly can be. Okay. All right, Mike, where, well, where can people find out about you, about physical therapy brokers, all of the places? Yes. So my company's uh, physical therapy practice sales and consulting. Um, I, my website is physicaltherapybrokers.com. Um, and you can email me at Mike at physicaltherapybrokers.com. Um, you know, that's the easiest way to get a hold of me. All righty. Thanks so much, Mike. All right. Thanks, Rafi. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I love sitting down and talking with Mike just about business and, you know, obviously what he does, mergers and acquisitions and preparing your business for sale and all that kind of stuff. It's nice having somebody in your pocket that has the information and has the experience doing it. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they were lamenting the fact they were going to have to pay. I can't remember if maybe it was an attorney, maybe it was an accountant, something some kind of fee. It was more than they wanted to pay to do something very important, like make sure their business stayed open. <laughs> um, and my way of looking at it, and I told them, I was like, oh, I'd rather pay somebody a little bit of the percentage, maybe of the profit or whatever, that I know that I would not have otherwise gotten if it wasn't for that individual. So like I pay it an accountant, I don't know what, couple grand a year to file taxes for me in the business. And at the end of the day, I look at it and that accountant saved me seven or eight thousand dollars in taxes. To me, that's that's a good investment for me. I would rather pay two thousand to somebody to save seven in the long run. And when it comes to a, a consultant that helps you sell your practice, I mean, you're talking the difference in even small changes in the multiple. The difference between five and five and a half times net earnings can be tens of thousands of dollars. So it's totally worth it to invest in that type of advice or that type of guidance when you're looking at selling the business. I think the thing that always strikes me whenever we talk, Mike and I, about this kind of stuff, he always harps on, <laughs> maybe harps not the right word, but he he always drives home the, pat, the, the fact that it is better to plan for this at the beginning or to get a as long a roadway runway as possible because it allows you to really one if you're building the business if you're in the building phase of the business to build it in a way that it just naturally makes it more attractive to an acquirer than um, than not right and if you're not if you if you have an established business and you're not planning on growing it much but you know that eventually you want to retire the, the longer time frame you have to make some of the changes that again might make only a small, a half a, half a, a percentage change in the multiple or something like that, half a, half a point is a big deal. Going from five to five and a half times that earnings can be huge. Um, so the longer 
time frame you give yourself to make those changes to one increase the value of the business and what you'll end up finding or at least what is has been the case with the clinic that I own and operate and the, the the clinics that I've worked with on the consulting side the fact that they're putting some of those changes in place they might not have necessarily thought about growing and expanding the business but they end up with a with a business that is much more profitable much less stressful to run and in some cases even expanding because you've got the the financial base to do so right so anything you can do from the very beginning as early on as you can to think about or realize that okay this is not a a knowledge uh, a knowledge uh, game so to speak it's not a, a knowledge firm which means that at some point I'm going to have a lot of assets. I'm going to have a business that has operations and employees and a lot of revenue that is going to have to be offloaded, if you would, or I'm going to have to extricate myself from that in order to retire. Um, Again, looking at starting with the end in mind and understanding that, then it it just makes sense that you would do, you would make decisions now that'll make the end game easier later, right? Or at least that's the way I look at it. I know that I'm not going to be able to physically treat patients my whole life. Maybe I'll just, maybe I will get tired or maybe I'm going to experience some kind of injury. I I go back to my grandfather. My grandfather was a vascular surgeon, great vascular surgeon, had a private practice, loved doing that work. He enjoyed it. He felt very fulfilled. His patients loved him. And much earlier than he thought he was going to retire, he experienced some kind of median nerve degeneration in his right, in his dominant hand. And he just felt... From, a, from an ethical standpoint, he just felt like he couldn't safely do the surgeries anymore. You know, you're dealing with vascular surgery isn't like a big muscle or something like that. There are tiny little blood vessels that you're fixing and, and doing all kinds of stuff. He just felt like he was placing his patients at unnecessary risk by con- continuing to, to do those surgeries. So he decided to retire. And at the time, um, it was his, the practice was basically he, my grandmother, and I think a couple assistant, medical assistants that he had but it wasn't a big, he hadn't built it as a business to sell. So he kind of just shut everything down, pulled it all down, um, you know, got the records, stored them, sold the equipment off, you know, let his, his uh, business license lapse. And that was that, was that basically, right? Um, and maybe you're in a position where that's, that's what your plan. It's just you, maybe an assistant. You're not planning on growing this thing all that much more. So it doesn't really make sense to... to think long-term exit strategy. Um, but if you're operating at a, at a typical, at a typical range in the PT world, PTOT world where I'm at, you know, you have five or six clinicians working and you're seeing, you know, several hundred, uh, visits a month, you know, that's, that becomes something harder to wind down. And then again, like, why would you, if there's value there that you've created, that you've sacrificed, you've gone out when other people were, we're I'm trying to think of the best way to say this while, while being respectful. I very much, um, not just because I am one, but I have a respect for anybody who has taken the plunge away from, or the dive away from secure employment to try to build something, the risk, if you would, you know, this country specifically in the United States where I'm located is built off of innovative risk-taking individuals who put their necks out on the line maybe to deliver services in a way that they haven't been delivered before, or maybe to deliver a a standard of care that they feel is missing in their community. So I have a lot of respect for that. And I also believe that if you've taken the risk to do that 
and it's been successful and you've been able to pay your staff, to pay yourself, and then to provide a high quality of care to your clients and your patients, you just deserve to be reimbursed for that risk, right? So if you've taken that risk and you've kept people on payroll for 15, for 20 years, you've provided thousands of clients and patients high quality services, then would you really just take all of that equity, that value that you've created in the marketplace from an economic standpoint and just throw it away? No, I mean, it makes sense to try to, to sell it because if, if what you have is successful and valuable, then somebody else is going to see that and want that and want to purchase that and maybe grow on the foundation that you've built. So anyways, those are, those are my little thoughts about entrepreneurship and taking risk and, and all of that. But um, it means nothing if your patients or your clients and your staff um, don't experience the value there. I once heard somebody say, I can't remember what book I've read this in, but in 20 years, your patients or your clients won't necessarily remember you. Maybe they remember your name. Maybe they remembered how they felt after they got done with you, but they're not going to remember the work you did. They're not going to remember the treatment technique or why you did it or the clinical reasoning. Um, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll come back and say, Hey, sometimes they won't. The people as business owners and clinical managers that we really have a greater impact on are the people that choose to spend eight, sometimes nine or 10 hours a day in our facilities, our staff, the clinicians that we employ, the clinicians that we mentor, the staff that we bring on board to help deliver the services. So I'm a big proponent of treating the people that work at the clinic or at the practice in a way that is one deserving of their respect, but really honors their choice because that's what it is, a choice to work with you, to you know invest their time and their energy into your work at the business, your vision, your mission, whatever it is. And then out of that will flow great experiences for clients and patients and just a culture that can't be matched in my opinion. So anyways, um, if you enjoy the show, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and review. It helps people find us. Um, you can find and pre-order the book now, The Better Outcomes um, Show has kind of spawned the uh, kind of a brainchild, which is now a book by the same title. It's called Better Outcomes, A Guide for Humanizing Healthcare. In the book, I talk a lot about biopsychosocial approaches. I talk a little bit about value-based reimbursement models. I talk about telehealth and technology. I talk a lot about leading client and patient engagements. You know, it's funny when I had somebody review the book, former colleagues of mine review the book, one of the things that they said, I come from an academic background myself, I was a professor, and I was told, you might wanna start replacing the word patients with clients because, um, you know, it just, it, it's better than, it, it's less hierarchical than like a doctor telling a patient what to do, it's more of a client relationship. And originally, like intellectually, I can kind of get that. At the same time, though, I kind of want to reclaim this idea of the clinician-patient relationship because at the end of the day, in my opinion anyways, calling a patient that, a patient and not a client, 
can, if it's handled appropriately, really, really deepen the relationship. How many clients do you see? It sounds, the word to me, client, and maybe it's because I've, I've been a consultant for a while, like client seems very transactional at times. The client gives you money, I do a service, and the, and the client leaves, right? But when I say patient, at least me and my own past experiences growing up and seeing my grandfather with his patients that, have come, that came back for, to him for years and years, and even in, in my own clinical practice, seeing patients come back after a year, two years, whatever, um, or building relationships with the staff and with the other clinicians, to me that is very uh, much more deep than a simply transactional relationship. You know, if somebody's my pa- a past patient of mine, we have a connection, a relationship that you know will hopefully last and extend beyond the time they are discharged from my services. So. Um, I know I get some flack every now and then for calling them patients or talking about patients. That's why I do it. I, I truly believe that we need to take back this idea of, of looking at patients that come into our clinic as people, as people that we're building relationships with and not simply clients that we do complete transactions with. Um, but anyways, that is all I've got today, folks. Um, until the next time, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.